We're celebrating uh, church history calls Palm Sunday. Uh, that is a picture of the king, the coming of the king. Uh, sometimes we talk about the triumphal entry, uh, and that's Jesus coming to the gates of Jerusalem and, and riding on a donkey and coming into Jerusalem. And one of the things that, you know, when you watch a video like that or you, you think about this whole idea of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, uh, that, that you have to be sort of struck by then how quickly things went bad for Jesus during the week, that, that we have this incredible moment where Christ is coming in, Jesus is coming uh, toward Jerusalem on this donkey and people are shouting Hosanna and glory to the king and, and then the next thing we know, by the end of the week, they're, they're betraying Jesus and they're arresting him and he's gonna be crucified and, and so how do things turn that fast? We wanna talk about that a, a little bit this morning we want to talk about the triumphal entry. We want to talk about what Palm Sunday means. We're going to do that reading from the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. Begins this way, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, I'm going to stop there for just a second. We have a picture for you. If we can jump to the picture, Suzanne. Um, it gives you a little bit of a perspective. Jerusalem, you can see there toward the left. And then uh, down south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. But about two miles east is Bethany. And you can barely read it, but Mount of Olives is a mountain ridge that, that goes just north of Bethany there. Bethany's kind of at the foot of the ridge. And this Olivet is also called Mount of Olives. And we know that at the Mount of Olives is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which historically is a really important place for Jesus. We know that Bethany was probably uh, the Jesus' primary place when he was in south in Judea. And Capernaum was probably his primary place when he was in the north in Israel. But you can see Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem and just a little bit closer in north is where Jesus is, where they're, ta uh, they're talking about right now in Luke 19, uh, Olivet or the Mount of Olives. So continuing on, it, it says, and he sent two of his disciples saying, go into a vi the village in front of you, whereupon entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Now words matter, so th pay attention to these words and, and what, what's going on here. It says, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So he's telling his, two of his disciples, two of his followers, he says, I want you to go to the town ahead and, and I want you to, find, you'll find a colt when you get there. It's this Jedi mind trick, you know, you'll go in and you'll say there's a colt and it's tied there and you'll tell the guy, okay, let it be released and he'll let it be released. And then so Jesus tells him, go, you're gonna find a colt. It's not really a Jedi. Some of you are going, is that, should I put that in my notes? No, 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 I was just having fun. Uh, but he said, you'll go into this town, you'll find a colt tied, and untie it, and I want you to bring it because I'm gonna ride it into Jerusalem. And, it, and make sure that it's the colt that's never been ridden before. That's a really important part of this. Okay, so they get it, they go in, and it says, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32 says, so those who were sent away and found it just as he was told. And they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
So Jesus is preparing for his entry into Jerusalem. There's going to be one more leg of this journey. He's in Bethany, Bethphage area, Mount of Olives. Now he's going to go that last two miles into Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, he's going to get up on this colt, this this colt of a donkey that's never been ridden. And he's going, to work, he's going to find his way now. He's going to ride on into Jerusalem. And there's an important historic context for this because there was a tradition uh, in ancient times that, that often the king, as he's going out to battle, uh, as he's leaving his kingdom, as, as he's leaving his city, uh, he would ride on a war horse and a charger and he would have the whole army and it would be a great display of power and, uh, and force. And so he would ride out like that with his army. But when he came back, he would come back on a donkey, which was a sign of victory and a sign of peace that he would come back humbly, that the war is over, we've won the war, and now we're coming back in peace. And so it was not, there was precedent historically for the king to ride out on a charger, to ride out on a great war horse, but to come back on a donkey is a sign of peace. We also know that Solomon rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt that had been his father, David's, uh, when he went into Jerusalem for his coronation. And so we also have that precedent in their family. So there's lots tied up in there, but I want you to picture this uh, as we move forward in the passage that here's Jesus and he's saying, I want a colt that's never been ridden, uh, the colt of a donkey, and we're gonna ride that into Jerusalem. All right. So now they're coming in. There's the, the other part of this that's really interesting is that, that um, Jesus says, I want an unbroken colt. I'm coming in peace, not as a political or a military figure. And it matches up with a passage out of the Old Testament, roughly 450 years before the birth of Christ. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9 spoke of the Messiah coming on the back of a colt, um, a donkey. And so we know that, that Zechariah, the, Isra- the Israel's prophet, spoke 450 years prior to this that the Messiah would come on, on the, the back of the colt of a donkey. And so there were, but after the prophets, we, we've, you know, you've got uh, Zechariah's the next to the last book in the Old Testament, and after all the prophets, you've got more than 400 years of silence. 400 years from the last prophet to the birth of Christ till actually till John the Baptist shows up. And it's 400 years of silence, but it's also 400 years to get the story mixed up, to get the story confused. And so uh, for the 400 years, because people were waiting for the Messiah, people were thinking the Messiah was going to come any day. People were, were, were go- going through all of their, um, their, their Jewish rituals and ce- celebrations and, and feasts, and they're going through the Feast of the Passover, and, and they're remembering that God rescued them from Egypt, and they're going through the Feast of Pentecost, and, and they're remembering God's provision, and all of that is geared up to keep in mind that the Messiah has promised that he's coming back sometime. And so now, four over 400 years have gone by and they've been waiting and nothing's happened and and they're starting to lose sight of what the goal really was and so they find themselves as other kings come up as other people try to become kings as they're under first Babylonian captivity and then Persian captivity and then the Romans uh, they're 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 forgetting what the, the forgetting what the promises are that God has made to them it's kind of like in our political system a little bit, uh, you know, every, every election cycle, um, somebody tells us 
how they can change America, right? How, how they can set us on a course to renewed prosperity and peace and, and all of those things. And so we, you know, uh, people typically, you know, with great expectation and great hope, we vote somebody in and then over a little bit of time, we're maybe disappointed and it's not working out the way and where was that hope and where's the change and where's all the stuff that we're expecting. And so we get really disappointed and we're waiting for the next cycle so that we can hire the, we can hire or we can elect the next guy that's going to bring hope and he's going to, you know, change the economy. He's going to do all those kinds of things. And, and we go through this so many times that, that after a period of time, uh, a couple of things happen to us. Maybe we get a little bit cynical. Yeah, none of these guys are any good. Why do we even bother? Nobody's honest. Nobody can do, you know, let's, you know, get rid of everybody and start over, whatever. You know, we get a little bit cynical. We don't trust. We, um, maybe we just sort of get apathetic. We don't vote anymore. We just sort of say, this is a waste of time and energy, and why even bother? It's not going to change. And, and so we go through all of those sort of things uh, in, in our own election cycle. So it should be easy for us to have the, the understand what it was like if you're in Israel and you've been waiting for the Messiah for more than 400 years. And and, and people are popping up periodically claiming to be the Messiah, but then they, you know, they fall away. They don't work out. And so look at that. I guess that wasn't the guy. And the next guy pops up and says, he's the Messiah. And now Jesus comes and, and you're wanting to be the Messiah. But during those 400 years, you've changed your view of who the Messiah is. And your goal for the Messiah, your goal for the Messiah is that he's going to come in and he's going to lead a revolt. He's going to lead a war. He's going to throw out the Romans. He's going to set up what we would call a theocracy. It's a, a, a God-centered government, and it's going to be with the Messiah, and the Israelites are going to rule, and God's going to make everything right, and so you now are waiting for that to happen, and, and then Jesus shows up riding on a colt of a donkey. <laughs> Jesus shows up with a message that you weren't expecting, and he shows up in a way that you weren't expecting. And maybe you'd just stopped expecting, maybe they had become cynical, maybe they'd become apathetic, maybe they'd just gotten the message confused over that time, but Jesus came and they weren't expecting him. Let's look at Luke 19, starting at verse 35. It says, they brought the colt, they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice uh, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And uh, some, of the, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here we have this scene. They put cloak, their cloaks on the donkey. Uh, they start uh, spreading cloaks on the ground. They have the palm branches. They have all this stuff. They're, they're shouting to the top of, of the, their lungs, uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and earth and highest. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the elite, they were, they, they were angry by this and they were frightened by this because they knew what this language meant. This language was a proclamation of a king. This language was a game changer. It was saying that all of these people were proclaiming Jesus was 
the king, and, and, and Jesus is letting them do it. Jesus is saying, it's okay now. You can tell people who I am. And so they're shouting as loud as they can, Hosanna. They're shouting words that were used in the Old Testament to proclaim the king, words that people have been waiting for for 400 years to hear for longer than that. And now they're shouting it, and Jesus is letting them do it. And the religious leaders are frightened, they're concerned, and they tell Jesus to make them stop. And Jesus says, I'm not going to make them stop, because if I do, the very stones will cry out in all of this time. I love this scene, because he's riding a colt that's never been ridden. I mean, do you get the irony in this? Uh, anybody ever tried to break a horse? Anybody ever tried to ride a horse that's never been ridden before? It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and here is Jesus. Not only is this an unbroken colt of a donkey, but it's people are yelling and screaming all around. They're throwing things in front of the donkey. He's covered with cloaks. This is a crazy, crazy environment, but this is Jesus the Christ that's sitting on him. And they're riding into Jerusalem. The crowds are cheering as they follow Jesus. He's coming in as a king. Jesus riding into Jerusalem, leading an amazing procession that we will call the triumphal entry, that we will celebrate on Palm Sunday. But here's the problem. There's going to be a collision between two different views of glory, two different views of, of what a king really is, uh, what a Messiah really is, and Jesus is the only one who sees this collision coming. Uh, anybody know, anybody remember what kind of branches that the crowd was waving when Jesus walked through? Yeah, it's not a trick question. It was palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, you guys are a quick crowd. I was with. <laughs> They're palm branches, and and uh, a lot of people today, you know, we think of Palm Sunday, and we think we have this great little sanitized idea of what Palm Sunday is with children, you know, children's parade, and and, and waving these cute little branches, and uh, and they don't have to clean them up, by the way, after service. And there's a reason for you, you know what they. Um, um, but it's not like that. It was a symbol uh, in its day, and symbols are, are loaded with meaning. And, and uh, uh, along the way, sometime before Jesus' day, the temple was rededicated. And when the temple was rededicated, they used palm branches as part of the rededication. Uh, you remember, we've talked about the, the fact that, that Israel had been overrun by the Babylonians. And, and if you want to read the prophets in the Old Testament, they're chronicles of all these different stages. So the Babylonians took over uh, Israel, and then the Persians came, and they kicked out the Babylonians, but they took over Israel. And so they're an occupied country for centuries that when the, the, they... The Persians got kicked out by the Romans, but in there, there's a little period of time where there's a group of uh, Hebrews called the Maccabees, and, and they come from this particular area, and the Maccabees had a revolt, and they were around from roughly six, uh, 163 uh, B.C. to 64 B.C., and they had a revolt, and, and so they... they uh, 
they took back Jerusalem for a, a period of time, two different times, and, uh, and one of those, the first time, they rededicated the temple, uh, and they used palm branches uh, in that rededication, and then the so the palms became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Uh, they became a symbol of Jewish freedom. And so there were two major wars that Israel fought uh, with the Romans. And during those two wars, they minted coins. At, on one side of the coin, they, it was a palm branch. And we have a picture here, an ancient coin from that period with a palm branch uh, on it. And they, so it was kind of like the Boston Tea Party. It was a, it was a political event. It was a part of the rebellion against uh, England in the Boston Tea Party. Well, they had their rebellion against the Romans and they minted these coins during that time uh, as part of that rebellion, uh, as part of their, it became a political symbol. It became a symbol of freedom. And so the palm branch isn't a child's thing, but the palm branch became a declaration of war. It became a symbol of freedom. It became a symbol of, of nationalism. So, so waving that palm branch is, is akin to saying there's another uh, rebellion happening. There's another takeover happening. There's a new king who's coming to town, and we're acknowledging him, and we're recognizing him by using that ancient symbol uh, of the palm branch. A conquering hero would bring the spoils of battle home while the, while the crowds cheered. And so this is a military statement. So while Jesus is coming in on a donkey, the crowds are proclaiming him king. They're pro proclaiming another revolution and Jesus is letting them do it because there is another revolution coming. There is change coming. It just doesn't happen to be the change that they thought. They shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and that actually comes from Psalm 118.38, that it's an ancient psalm that was used in reference to the Messiah. It was used often in Jewish ceremonies to remind them that a new king was coming, and they would recognize him. 400 years have passed now, and they've forgotten. 400 years have passed, and the meaning of it has sort of dimmed for them, but now they're shouting it as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But what they mean is blessed is the one who's going to overthrow Pilate. Blessed is the one who's going to overthrow Herod. Blessed is the one who is going to get rid of the Romans. Blessed is the one who's going to create a new nation for him. They weren't thinking about the Messiah that was going to come to give his life as a ransom for the world. They thought about a leader, a political military leader, someone that was coming in for sweeping change in their country. The crowd's overwhelmed with Jesus. They've seen what Jesus is done. A number of them, it, it, last week we talked about Jesus in Bethany and when he raised Lazarus from the tomb. We talked about the fact that since it was only two miles from Jerusalem, there were a crowd of people that went from Jerusalem uh, to Bethany to mourn with Jesus. And so there are all these people that had come from Jerusalem, plus the people in Bethany. Jesus starts his trip now back to Jerusalem. So this crowd is already following him. It's growing as he goes. So now you have this multitude, it says, this huge group of people that are walking with Jesus. They're following him into Jerusalem. They're cheering for him, they're chanting for him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah is finally here. Uh, Jesus has showed up, but in a little less than a week, they're all going to scatter. And Jesus is going to be arrested and falsely accused, and then uh, a crowd that's going to be paid by the religious leaders will shout for him to be crucified. 
And you would think that if they really thought Jesus was supposed to be king, if they really thought Jesus was the Messiah, that somebody would revolt, somebody would do something. They wouldn't just let Jesus be arrested like that. They wouldn't let Jesus be brutally beaten and then crucified. But they were looking for the wrong Jesus. Here's the thing, the point, the, the triumphal procession, the triumphal entry is going to go down in flames in just a few days. And, and I know what I would have done if I were Jesus. I would have hung out at the gates for a while and then I would have said, okay, this has been great. We've kind of made our entry. Uh, enjoy the moment. Take in the praise and the recognition. Uh, and but you know that they have it wrong. You know that they have bad expectations. And, and so what, what does Jesus do at that point? What does he do when he enters into Jerusalem? They've, they've announced him king, and Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the king, but Jesus knows there's about to be a collision because he's not the kind of king that they were looking for. He's not the kind of king they were waiting for. That Jesus is the king who came to give his life as a sacrifice not to just wipe out all the bad guys, not to take over the country, but to give his life as a ransom, to change everybody, instead of changing their outward life, to change their inward life and let the outward world change as a result of what God was doing inside of them. It was a totally different picture, a totally different point. Okay, we're gonna come back to that in a second, but let's look at, Luke 19, verse 41, it says, and when he drew near and he saw the city, listen to this, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known, weeping over Jerusalem, that you'd have known this, um, on this day the things that make for peace and now they're hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and, and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not uh, know the time of your visitation. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he said the Messiah came and you missed him. The Messiah came and you weren't looking for him. All of those reminders, all of those celebrations, all of the Passovers, all of the Feast of Pentecost, all of those things that you did for all of those hundreds of years to remind you of my faithfulness, to remind you of my love for you. You have forgotten those things and he weeps. He doesn't weep because of, of what's gonna happen to him. He doesn't weep because he's afraid of the circumstances, but he sees the fact that they've missed the Messiah. They've missed their opportunity. And certainly 70 years down the road, the temple is gonna be taken apart stone by stone and everything that Jesus says is gonna to come to pass. <laughs> and then another verse. At Jesus, well, let me just say this first, that Jesus enters into Jerusalem and what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't rent an office. He doesn't go in and take over the palace. But the first place that Jesus goes is to the temple. In verse 45, it says this, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold there. So here's Jesus, he comes in on a donkey 
And the very first place that he goes is to the temple, the place that was historically known as where the presence of God lived. It was the place that they had, uh, and there was a national center for religious life of the Israelites and the Judeans. It was the place that, that was said that God's presence would dwell, that once a year the high priest would go into the holies of holies and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And Jesus goes to that very place. Jesus goes, and he, because we know that Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, referring to himself, I'll rebuild it in three days. It'll come back in three days. And then later in 1 Corinthians 6, he tells us that now you're the temple of the Lord because my spirit dwells in you. Well, at this point in history, the temple was known as that place where the spirit of God, the presence of God lived. And Jesus goes back. He goes directly to that place, to the temple. And what he finds isn't at all what's supposed to be there. Because over the years, they've forgotten. Over the years, they've gotten cynical. Over the years, they've gotten apathetic. And so what's happened at the temple is in the outer courts of the temple has become a marketplace. It's become a place where if you're a pilgrim and you come to, to, the, to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice during Passover or one of the other celebrations uh, and you come with the wrong coins, it's like going to Europe and having to exchange your dollars for, for their currency. It's, it, you, you come to Jerusalem and you've got to exchange your money for theirs because your money's not going to work there. And so you go to the money changers and they charge you a fee to change your money, and then the priests get a take, they get a little bit off the top of that, and then the only real sacrifices that you can buy are sacrifices that are sold there in the temple, and the, the religious leaders get a, they get, a t they get a take off of the top of that too, so you've got this commerce that's going on in the temple, and it's filled with guys yelling, it's like the New York Stock Exchange, they're, they're out there and they're calling at you as you come in, there are guys yelling at you, come over to my table, come here, this is where you can change your money and they're competing with each other and they're calling out and so all over the outer court of the temple is just this madhouse of guys trying to make money guys trying to get you to come to their table to either change your money there or to buy your doves or your lambs or whatever it is that you need at that place and so it's just this big loud mess and Jesus comes in and says this isn't what the temple was supposed to be for this is the house of God. This is where God dwells. This is a place of prayer. And so Jesus comes in. He doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to Herod. He doesn't go to Pilate. He goes to the temple. He goes to the holiest place. And he sees that it's been using, used for a fair. It's been used for merchants. And so he takes this rope and he makes knots in it. And he winds it up. And he drives out all of the money changers. And he turns over the tables. And he lets all the animals go. And he creates this bedlam. But he is clearing out the temple because it is a place that belongs to God. And Jesus came back to put God in his right place again, not to put the Israels in their place, not to create another political system, but to put God back in his place as the prominent figure in Israel, as the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. That's his goal. And so he drives out all the merchants, he drives them all out of the temple. And he says, this is God's house. This is a house of prayer. You know, I have friends that tell me that you should move every 10 years so you can just clean the junk out of your garage. What do you think? 
just get rid of all the stuff you've accumulated. Every 10 years, you should just sell your house and move so that you get rid of all the stuff that's sort of built up, right? I'm opting for two years, I'm thinking, but 10, okay, right? Because we just have a proclivity to collect stuff. I, I'm, we, we, we just, I don't even know where some of it came from. It just showed up in my garage and it's been there and, and we think well, somebody may use it someday or the kid's gonna want it, it's gonna fit the grandkid. I don't know what it's there for. It just fills up my garage and, and you do, you think sometimes you just wanna either move or throw a grenade in there and just blow the whole thing up, start over. But we collect stuff. Uh, you know, we're hoarders in some ways, in interesting ways. And what if, what if that collection of stuff really kept us from living life? It bound us. Well, I don't, I can't, I don't, I can't move anywhere. I, I can't take this job. I can't, because look at all the stuff we have. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to get rid of it? And also we're trapped by the junk, the stuff that surrounds us, the stuff that fills our house and our garage. We're captured by it. And we take a look at the temple when Jesus came in and we find that God's house had been taken over by junk. And here's the question that I would have this morning. Do you think that the money lenders and the merchants selling doves and lambs, do you think that they would have done anything differently if they'd known that the Messiah was showing up at the temple that day. Do you think it would have looked any different? Do you, you think that they would have been better prepared if they'd known that the Messiah was showing up? I don't know what you expect of Jesus, but I know that sometimes you're disappointed in him. I know that sometimes your, uh, your idea of who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do and when he's supposed to do it and how he's supposed to do it is, is different, is different. And, and sometimes we're disappointed in Jesus because he doesn't show up fast enough or he doesn't do what we're expecting or maybe we don't feel like he's done anything at all and, and we've built up this idea of who he is and how he's supposed to work and, and how he's supposed to do things. And when Jesus does show up, isn't it possible that we could miss him because we're not looking for him? We're not looking for really Jesus. We're looking for a handyman. We're looking for a lottery ticket. We're looking for somebody to fix our problems. And Jesus shows up and we actually miss him. Isn't it possible that some of us are like the merchants and the money lenders that, that, that we've just let so much chaos build up in our hearts and our lives that, that when Jesus comes in, all he can do is just drive that stuff. He says, you gotta, before you can know me, before you can meet me, we just gotta clear all of this junk out of your life that's just accumulated here, that's cluttered in your heart and your mind and your life. We gotta get this stuff out so that you're prepared to meet the Messiah, so that you're prepared to see Jesus. And so this morning, I wanna challenge us that as we begin Easter week, that, that Jesus is going that Jesus is, is real, that Jesus has risen, that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, but the question is, will we recognize him when he shows up in our lives? Have we allowed our lives to get so full of junk that we've accumulated, and there's all kinds of junk. There's possessions, there's anger, there's fear, there's expectations, there's all of those things that crowd into our heart and our mind. Have we allowed that stuff to get so 
filled up in our hearts and our minds that we're going to miss Jesus when he shows up. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Christ when he comes. He may show up in a way that we don't expect, but let's look for him. Let's expect him. Let's prepare our hearts for him. Let's, let's let him clean out anything in our lives that he wants to clean out so that when he comes, we're ready for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the, the grace that you offer us. Thank you for the power of the triumphal entry, Lord. Palm Sunday that we get to celebrate. Lord, we are so grateful. And Lord, we don't want to miss what you're doing. We don't want to miss when you show up in our lives. Lord, forgive us for allowing things to clutter our hearts and our minds. Forgive us for allowing things to fill up this place that is designed and created for you, Lord. Lord, we want to receive you this morning. Uh, Fill us, Lord. Clean us out, I pray. Prepare our hearts. Lord, we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.